Today is a very special day. Not only is it the 75th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel, Yom Ha'atzmaut, 2023, but it's also Parsha Podcast Day. I'm in the famed, vaunted studios in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This week, it's Parsha's Achrimos and Kadoshim, the second week in a row that we have a double Parsha. And there's a lot to talk about. Our parshas deal with many, many, many mitzvos. Tons of mitzvos in both parshas. We have 28 in the first parsha, 51 in Kedoshim, the second parsha, 79 mitzvos all told, including some very famous and very iconic ones. Of course, the parsha starts off with the Yom Kippur service. Acharei Mos, after the death of Nadvan of you, Moshe tells Aaron not to enter into the Holy of Holies at any time. There has to be very specific protocols. There's a vast list of requirements that are needed before Aaron can enter the Holy of Holies. And what is needed? So the beginning of the parish deals with the whole Yom Kippur service, essentially the whole book of Talmud, the book of Yoma that deals with this. There are a variety of sacrifices, the bull and the ram and the two male goats and the ram from the congregation and all the specific garments that the high priest must wear before he enters the Holy of Holies. Of course, typically the Kohen Gadol is bedecked with the special eight garments of the Kohen Gadol, of the high priest. When you enter the Holy of Holies, you cannot wear any gold. Instead, there are the white garments, and there's the whole process, very detailed. You sacrifice the bull, and you draw the lots on the two male goats, once for God and once for the Azazel. And then there's the whole process of the incense and the processing of all the sacrifices, and he must enter the Holy of Holies alone, and the goat to Azazel is sent with a designated person to chuck it off a cliff and thereby expiate the nation. Now, all this, of course, is described in very great detail. And these are all the requirements. Aaron's told, you can't just enter into the Holy of Holies like Nadav and Avihu did. You have to be ready. You have to follow all these criteria. All these conditions must be in place before you enter the Holy of Holies. Now, it is very interesting that the one factor that we all think of, and that is the timing. This is only done once a year. This is only done on the 10th day of Tishri on Yom Kippur. That is not present in the whole beginning of the Parsha. That condition is not mentioned until verse 29, so we're nearly 30 verses into this narrative. The verse tells us that this should be for you a rule forever. On the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, you subject yourselves, you, of course, you fast, and this process is done. Now, there's an amazing idea that I saw this year for the first time from the Goan of Vilna. This is not the central point of the podcast, but it's a bonus idea. It's a little bachish. It's a special Yomatsmu treat. Such a fantastic, interesting, and foundational idea. I have to share it. The Goan of Vilna says, that there are a long list of requirements that are needed to enter the Holy of Holies. However, the fact that one of the requirements is that it must be on the 10th day of the 7th month, it must be on Yom Kippur, 
that is only for you, i.e. for the descendants of Aaron. Only they, the sons of Aaron, were limited to enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. But Aaron, any time that he wanted, provided that he followed this specific protocol, all these sacrifices and this whole process, this could be done any day of the year for Aaron for 40 years. And the reason why, says the Gonville, not very interesting, that for 40 years, the status of the Jewish people was like a perpetual Yom Kippur. The way the Parsha starts off is that God tells Moshe, go tell Aaron, to not enter the Holy of Holies at all time, only once the cloud of God appears upon the Holy of Holies. And for 40 years, says the Gona Vilna with evidence, there was an ever-present cloud atop the cover, atop the ark in the Holy of Holies. Subsequently, it was only on Yom Kippur. And that's why, he points out, when it talks about the lighting and the preparation of the menorah later on in Leviticus, it mentions specifically Aaron. And the reason why is for 40 years, Aaron had to do it himself, even though subsequently it could be done by any Kohen, because on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, has to do all the services that were done inside the sanctuary. He had to do it himself. And for 40 years, the state of the Jewish people was such that it was like Yom Kippur all the time. And just as on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, cannot delegate to a minor, to an ordinary Kohen, so too for the 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, Aaron, the high priest, could not delegate. And therefore, for 40 years, this is a new idea. For 40 years, Aaron was not limited by the fact that it's not Yom Kippur. Everything else, yes, would be needed. All the other requirements to enter the Holy of Holies would be needed. The various sacrifices, the bull, the ram, the two goats, the communal bull, etc. All that would be needed. But the fact that the calendar has to say Yom Kippur, that was not needed. Why? Because for 40 years, the state of the Jewish people was such The cloud was always atop the ark, and it always had the standing and the status of Yom Kippur. To me, this is an incredible idea, not just because it's a very sharp reading of the verse, the verse is, but also because this gives us an insight, a little window, into these 40 years. The Talmud calls this generation the Dardea, the generation of knowledge. This is the greatest generation, not the ones that stormed the beach in Normandy. The generation that left Egypt and that ate the manna and that received the Torah at Sinai for 40 years, they were living on that lofty, elevated spiritual plane that we only revisit once a year on Yom Kippur. I had a minor addition to this idea We're told that, the Torah tells us, that for 40 years, the nation ate manna. Manna, we're told, is lechem abirm. It's the food of angels. We know in Yom Kippur, we mimic, we role play as if we're angels. Which is why we wear white and we say the the prayer of the angels, etc. Angels don't eat, but the manna is like the food of the angels. 
And Yom Kippur, we, we fast because we're like angels. We don't need food. For 40 years, we effectively had a fast and we ate the manna, which is just the bread of the angels. This is an interesting way the Parsha starts off. We have this very long narrative about the Yom Kippur service. And now we have a new idea. And I did that. Well, maybe it's not new for you. It's new for me. That actually, for 40 years, there was the standing of Yom Kippur. And that was not a limiting factor in preventing Aaron from entering the Holy of Holies. Yes, he would have to do everything else. But provided he did everything else, every day would be fitting for him to enter the Holy of Holies. Now, of course, the Parsha, both Parshas continue with just a veritable barrage of mitzvos. Sacrifices have to be offered in the temple, not outside. We cannot eat blood. The blood of a slaughtered bird or undomesticated animal must be covered. We have all the forbidden relationships. We have molech, which is this very twisted and macabre form of idolatry where they would actually give over the child and the child would be burned, at least according to some of the opinions. We're warned about the sensitivity of the land. It will expel us like it expelled the previous inhabitants of the land if they are not worthy. Anyone who lives the land is not worthy of settling the land. The land has an intolerance of sin and it will disgorge you. It will vomit you out if you're not worthy of living in it. As an aside, it's kind of noteworthy. The land that changed hands more than any other in all of recorded human history is the Holy Land. And the reason why is because the the deed of the land, what determines who's the owner, it's spiritual. And if you lose the spiritual rights of the land, the land will expel you. Now, Parshas Kedoshim continues this theme. It tells us that we have to be holy, like God, with fair parents, observe Shabbos, don't worship idols, don't make any molten gods. When you offer a sacrifice, you have to have the right intentions to follow with all the precise protocols of said sacrifice, what to do with the leftover sacrificial meat. The parts of the field have to be left to the poor, not to steal, not to lie, not to swear falsely, not to cheat. Don't delay payment to a worker. Don't curse the deaf. Don't place a stumbling button for the blind. Fear God. Don't corrupt judgment. Don't favor the poor. Don't favor the rich either. Don't be a gossip mongerer. Don't stand idly while your brother's blood is being shed. Of course, this continues one after another. And today I want to focus on one of the mitzvos. This is in chapter 19, verse 19, 1919. It talks about the three forbidden mitzvahs. The verse tells us, Guard my statutes. What are the statutes? Don't mix different species. Don't interbreed different animals. Don't plant different seeds next to each other. And don't wear a garment that's woven out of wool and linen. So we have this idea of mixtures. There are a variety of mixtures that are prohibited. It's almost like, you know, milk is kosher, meat is kosher, the mixture, the milk and meat together, that's the problem. Here we have three mitzvahs, so three prohibitions in one verse, 1919, and they're all mixtures. You have one animal, you have a different species, don't put them together. Don't mate them together. You have different seeds, different types of seeds, and you can put them next to each other. Maybe they could graft together and create something new, or they could kind of improve each other. 
don't do that. You have two different fabrics that you could use to make a garment. You have wool, you have linen. You cannot mix the two. You cannot wear a garment that is interwoven with wool and linen. And there's a fascinating discussion here in Rashi and Ramban about these mitzvos, the three prohibited mixtures. Rashi notes that the verse begins with the following preface, Es chuko saitishmoru, guard my statutes. Now, there are many different words in the Torah that are used to describe a mitzvah. Mitzvah means a commandment. But sometimes commandments are called mishpat, a mishpatim, which means laws. And sometimes they're called a chok, which means like a statute. And typically a chok is an example of a type of law that does not make sense. So Rashi says, all these three mitzvahs, not to mix different animals, not to mix different seeds, not to mix wool and linen in your garments. These are all examples of chukim, of laws that make no sense. In the words of Rashi, these are decrees of a king. There's no reason. If you have a king, and the king gives you an order, and it makes no sense, you are not at liberty to refuse the orders of the sovereign. You have to follow orders, whether it makes sense, whether it doesn't make sense. If you're fortunate, you have a benevolent king that only gives rules and orders and commandments and directives that make sense and that are beneficial. But regardless, if the king gives an order, it may or may not make sense, you have to obey. These three laws, says Rashi, they're all the orders of the king. It makes no sense to us. What's wrong with mixing different animals or different seeds? What's wrong with the mixture of wool and linen? But there's no reason. It's a decree from the heavenly king. Of course, we have other examples of this phenomenon. The canonical example. It's the red heifer. You came in contact with the dead. Now you're impure. Well, how do you resolve that? How do you restore your purity? You want to go to the temple? You want to go to places that you have to be pure? You want to eat sacrificial meats that demand purity? You got to take a red heifer. You got to slaughter it. You got to burn it. You got to mix the ashes with all sorts of other ingredients. We'll get to this, of course, in the book of Numbers. It's a chok. It makes no sense to us. Why would that cleanse a person from impurity? No one knows. Along these lines, you want to create a chimera. You want to mix different animals, mix seeds, mix wool and linen. It's prohibited. 1919. Makes no sense to us. It's beyond human logic. That's Rashi. Ramban has a fascinating series of questions on Rashi. He begins with uh, a question, or really he contests Rashi's definition of a chok. Rashi says that a chok is one of these laws that make no sense. There's no reason. So why do we do it? Because it's a decree from the king. So he modifies that a little bit, uh, the Ramban does. He says, no, no, no. There are reasons 
for the chutim, for these statutes. But they're not revealed to us. God, of course, has a reason why he gives us every mitzvah. It's not just arbitrary. There's a reason for it. But some reasons make sense to us. They jibe. They match. They're understood by human intellect. These are only understood by divine intellect. And we're limited. We have some degree of intelligence that the Almighty apportioned to us. But there is a higher level of intelligence that maybe we don't have. Maybe the angels understand it, but certainly God does. And there are some mitzvahs that we're told, do them, and there's a reason that we can readily understand. And there are some mitzvahs that we're told, do them, and there is a reason that we don't understand, but not because there is no reason. There is a reason. It's just that it was not revealed to us. And of course, Ramban has a lot of proof to this idea. He doesn't mention this, but our sages tell us that there was one person who knew the reason behind the red heifer. The red heifer, the paradigmatic example of a chok, makes no sense. Moshe understood it. Moshe had elevated his intelligence to such a godly level, he was actually able to go up to heaven and converse with the Almighty, of course, converse with the angels, triumph over them. Moshe had access to a different level, different class, a different realm of intelligence, and he was able to understand the red heifer as well. I say this tell us that Solomon tried, but he declared that that wisdom is beyond him. So that's an interesting introduction to this Ramban, that there is a slight difference between saying something has no reason versus saying that it has no reason that we can appreciate. The Ramban proceeds to argue in Rashi. So once we have the, the definitional question aside, he says, actually, no. This verse does not exclusively contain mitzvos that are chutim, that are statutes, whose reason is beyond us, whose reason is hidden from us. Rashi says that all the laws of this verse are beyond us. Says the Ramban, no, they're not. I'll give you the reason. And he reveals to us the reason why interbreeding is a problem. And he tells us, because who created the species in our world? God created all the species in our world. And he created multitudes of different species. And all have the ability to procreate and to create others, other examples of said species in their likeness. And as long as the world endures, the original species, well, they're still here. They have the capacity, at least, to endure. Now, they're told all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, to not interbreed. Every animal should mate with its kind. Why? Because this is the system that the Almighty created. This world 
and these animals and these species, and that's what he wants. And therefore, the animals are told to not fork, so to speak, the species and create new animals. And if there's a person, says Ramban, who breeds one species with another, in effect, they are contesting God's master plan of Genesis. And they're saying, well, God didn't do a good job. He didn't complete his world. There are things that are missing. God did a half measure. He didn't do a good job in Genesis. I'm going to help him. I'm going to create a new species. And that will improve the world. God doesn't need your help in Genesis. God did Genesis perfectly. And if you breed the donkey with the horse, it's as if you are saying, God, actually, there was something that was missing in Genesis, and I'll help you along. I'll create the mule. And he says something really interesting. When you interbreed two species together, for the most part, it does not actually work. It won't produce any offspring. But even those hybrids that we can, so to speak, create, it has no continuity. The mule cannot procreate. And this is a second reason why creating new animals and also new seeds, as he goes on to say, should be banned from a perspective that we understand in a way that's logical to us. You don't need even divine intelligence for this. You are creating something that cannot have continuity. And creating something that cannot endure, that has no perpetuation, that's a violation of God's plan. God says he wants the world to have continuity. You're creating something that's a dead end that cannot perpetuate. That's violating the plan of Genesis. And he says, this is obviously something that the horticulturists, I'm sure, can confirm. When the seeds get mixed and they create something new, it doesn't flourish. It doesn't have that continuity. So, Rashi, you're saying that these mitzvot in verse 19 of chapter 19 there's no reason. Well, first of all, even the mitzvahs that don't have a reason, at least not a reason that we can appreciate, they do have a reason, just a divine reason that's beyond human intelligence. But these, there are two reasons why we should not mix the animals and the seeds. He does acknowledge that shatnes, mixing wool and linen, in fact, is a chok. The reason for that demands godly intelligence. But these two, not to mix the animals and not to mix the seeds, there are two very good reasons for them. If you do that, you're trying to create something new and you're displaying, you're demonstrating tacitly, if you will, that God did not do a full job. And you're creating something in a way that precludes it from flourishing or procreating. And that's why even our intelligence understands that it is a problem. So it's a very interesting debate here, Rashi and Ramban. First, we have a debate on the definition of a chok, 
of a statute, either no reason like Rashi tells us or no revealed reason in the words of Ramban. And we have a dispute as to whether or not interbreeding or mixing together animals or seeds are these two prohibitions examples of a chok or not. Now there's a very interesting comment here by Maharal. Maharal cites Ramban and the argument of Ramban. We believe that the Almighty is perfect and the Almighty created the world perfectly. And if someone is mixing two different species together to create something else, a third thing, a chimera of sorts, it's as if they are saying, or they're demonstrating, that the Almighty did not do a good job. There's a need for more species in the world, more than what the Almighty initially set out to create. That's the argument of the Ramban. So the Maral asks a brilliant question. Wait a minute. Are we just supposed to accept the world as it's given to us? All the time, we're tampering with creation. What grows out of the ground is not what we eat. God gives us wheat. And what do we do? We process it and process it and process it and process it until we finally consume it. The Almighty gives us a human body. And the first thing that we do is we alter it. We change it. We circumcise our babies. We believe that the world that the Almighty gives us and the, the bodies even the Almighty creates for us are in need of improvement. So what's the Thrombon saying? Oh, you cannot tamper with, you cannot disable or destroy the world that the Almighty creates. Because that that's calling into question God's prowess as a master plan of Genesis. We do that every single day. He doesn't mention it, but there is a great debate between Rabbi Akiva and the Roman governor of Judea, Turnus Rufus. And there are actually a few debates recorded between these two in the literature. Turnus Rufus, this evil Roman, he asks Rabbi Tiva says, well, whose deeds are greater, those of God or those of flesh and blood? Now, this is a trick question because Rabbi Tiva responded in a way that surprised the Roman. He said, well, the handiwork of flesh and blood of humans is greater than the handiwork of God. And of course, Turnus Rufus is a bit puzzled by this. Wait a minute. God created the heaven and the earth and all the constellations. Can you do that? So Rabbi says, well, that's not fair. If I can't do it, you can compare my handiwork to God's handiwork. So the Roman clarified, this is actually what I want to know. Why do you circumcise? God gives you such a wonderful body. 
It works so beautifully, such great utility. Everything is done perfectly. And right away, you alter it. You change it. Why would you change what the Almighty gives you? Are you claiming that your handiwork is better than God's handiwork? So Rabbi Tiva responded, you have on one hand stalks of wheat. On the other hand, you have loaves of bread, which is preferable. Of course, we want the handiwork of man. We want the handiwork of man that is consumable for us, that's proper for us. So too, says Rabbi Tiva, we want the handiwork of man. We want the circumcised one and not the uncircumcised one. Our deeds, says Rabbi Tiva, outshine God's deeds. Now, the Roman pivots to a new question. He says, okay, well, if it's so wonderful to be circumcised, why doesn't God do it? Why doesn't God circumcise? The baby should arrive circumcised already. And he responded that there are a lot of things that need to be done. Right away, you got to cut the umbilical cord, etc. But ultimately, he says that the Almighty wants us to do something as well. The reason why we exist is because we have a role to play in the world. The Almighty wants to partner with us. And therefore, he gives us mitzvos. And those mitzvos are the things that he wants us to do to elevate ourselves and to elevate the world around us. So we see a precedent to this idea that we are improving on what God did. God wants us to make improvements to his creation. So how come this is any different than making the mule? The whole world, everything we see every day, there are improvements. Productivity, we take raw materials, that God makes for us, and we modify them, we change them, we alter God's pristine world. We don't believe that we should just sit back and let the world just exist on its own. Of course, we're supposed to be good stewards of the world that the Almighty gives us, but it's created for us to improve, to elevate, to engage with dynamically. So how come there's this supreme logic, says Ramban, that to take the donkey and the horse and to merge them together to create the mule, that's a real problem. It's a brilliant question. And the answer is also brilliant, even though it makes a ton of sense. This is the answer. There is a difference between the development of something, when you perfect something, you, you refine it, you improve it, you, you upgrade it. That's different than the creation of a new being entirely. If you take seeds and you mix them together, you take animals and you mix them together, you're trying to create a new being. Trying to create a new species. And that's a problem because that's an indication 
that perhaps God, or at least that's what you're tacitly showing, God did not create enough beings, species in this world. But once you have a God-created being, a thing, a species, he sent it to us in need of improvement. There's a reason why we're here. You must not allow it to remain the way it was. You have a grand task, a sacred task, to develop and to perfect and to hone and to cultivate and to upgrade and to polish and refine what God gave you. Creating a different being, a different entity, that's a problem. Taking the entity that you got and to advance it and to develop it and perfect that being that God created, that is our life's mission. This is a beautiful idea from Maharal to explain the Ramban. Taking two animals and creating a third one, that's a violation of Genesis. Taking two seeds and creating a third one, that's a violation of Genesis. Taking one seed, one animal, one thing, and developing it, and cultivating it, and improving it, that is what we're here to do. And I think there's a very powerful lesson for us here as well. The Midrash tells us that every person is a mini-world. A person is olam katan, a mini-world. Incredible statement. Everything you find in the world, you find in miniature within a person. And every person's different. Every mini-world is unique. A person has to say, Bishri li nivra ha'olam, the world was created for me. I'm unique. I am a unique world. There never was someone with my mixture of abilities, of qualities, of attributes, of skills, a personality. There's never been someone who even looks like me. And there never will be. This universe, this mini-world, it's a complete world. And Adam was created alone. Because the fulfillment of the Almighty's plan for creation can be done by a single person. And in your little mini-world, you are Adam. And Adam has mini-world, and you have yours. And you have your work cut out for you. What do you do in your mini-world? You cannot sit by idly and allow nature to take its course. You can't kick up your feet and see how things play out. You you have to work. You were created to work. I have to take initiative. You have to be proactive. And you have to be willing to sweat a little bit. Because if you do nothing... You will regress. And not only won't you improve the world that you are its steward, 
you will allow it to get tampered and corrupted and sullied and ruined and damaged. We always need to be ascending. We always need to be elevating, perfecting, and improving. We can never be complacent because complacency is just another word for regression. And it starts from the very beginning. Within a week, we have circumcision. The baby is upgraded. And of course, we know that this is not just this one-time mitzvah. Our Sages tell us this is a mitzvah that is equal to all the mitzvahs combined because it represents what our life mission is. The Yitzhara, the evil inclination, which is ultimately what we are here to perfect or to eliminate or to neutralize. The Yitzhara is symbolized by the foreskin. At the very beginning of the life, that is excised. And that's symbolic of the life mission of humanity to improve and to overcome obstacles and to overcome challenges and to win in this battle for your soul to grow and develop and make progress and to have this relentless focus on improvement. That is circumcision. And that's why it's equal to all mitzvahs, because it symbolizes in a very tangible way what we need to do. The Almighty does want work from us. He wants us to partner with Him. And our handiwork is better than God's because we're trying to improve. We're this capstone. We're trying to be the capstone of creation. He wants to partner with us. And He wants us to do that final improvement to upgrade ourselves and everything that we encounter. Never-ending progress, development, and improvement. However, we have to realize that if we are to question the world that we're given, the mini-world that is us, that is the equivalent of trying to create a new species. The being that we are, the person that we are, the mini-world that the Almighty created for me, That I cannot alter. Trying to alter who I am, trying to wish that you were someone else, that's exactly like the person who's mixing the different different species together. It's a tacit criticism of God's creation. And that's a problem. That's like trying to make the mule. That's violating God's plan. And even if you try to do it, you try to change who you are fundamentally, you try to alter the world or mix the world with some other world, even if you do do it, it won't succeed. It won't flourish. It won't have continuity. The way you grow and flourish is not by changing the being that you were given the world that you were given by improving that world. My grandfather, a blessed member, used to always say that there are certain things that are just unchangeable. Of course, we're here to try to change, to improve. But there are some things that are so hardwired, that's the definition of the world that you have. He always used to say that if there was this like 
you know, really rowdy, abrasive, loud kid. And the parents really want the kid to be, you know, follow rules and be a quiet, bookish type. You are ruining the child, he would say, if you're trying to change him in a way that violates who they actually are. There are themes that you must accept as is. And those are the things that relate to who a person actually is, the species that they are, the world that they are. We don't believe that there's such a thing as a human species because every world is different. But that fixed thing that you are, that you have to accept. But within that, within that framework, inside that world, you must improve everything. This, I think, is a fundamental, it's a little bit of a subtle idea, but it's, a, it's an idea that can change our lives. And there's something very, very strange about the world that we live in. Our status tell us that every human is their own mini world, but somehow all the worlds live next to each other and they all go to school together. You have 15, 20 kids in a class and there's 15, 20 worlds and somehow they're all lumped together and they're all measured against each other. Your, your own world, completely unique, one of one without any peer. If you're completely unique and that's the species, the unique one of one species that you are, that you cannot change. Of course, this idea has many different lessons, but maybe a very relevant one is the idea of envy. Envy only stems from a failure to recognize that we are our own unique world. In the morning, we say a prayer, a blessing, thanking God that he made for me everything that I need. What exists in the other worlds, the features of another world, it's totally immaterial to my world. And we have to believe that inside our world, there is everything that we need to unlock our potential and to develop ourselves and to achieve what the Almighty created us to achieve. And no one will encroach upon your kingdom, even a hair's breadth. This is an incredible Ramban. God created everything that the world needs. And there's no need to create new things. The things that are created, we must develop. That's what we're here to do. But everything that we need, we have. And this applies to us on an individual level as well. The Almighty made for us everything that we need. Your world is completely stocked with everything that you might possibly need. But within that framework, there is a lot to do, and you must. But don't forget who you are, what you are, the world that you are, the world that God made. That is fixed. And don't question his judgment in that, but develop and perfect and hone that, and thereby you can serve as God's partner in perfecting 
that mini world that is you. We like to end off the Parsh podcast with a question, and this is a fun one. There is a very memorable story in the Talmud about the convert who wanted to convert, but he had a very specific requirement. He went over to Shammai and says, well, Shammai, teach me all of Torah while I'm balancing on one leg. Shammai was not thrilled with that, and he pushed him away, and he came to Hillel and says, well, will you convert me? But I want to study all of Torah while balancing on one leg. And Hill says, yes. And I'll teach you all of Torah. Balance. Let's go. All of Torah. That that you hate. That that you disdain. Don't do to your fellow. That's all of Torah. You could stop balancing. The rest of the Torah is just commentary to this one idea. This is an incredible, incredible Talmud. Now, most of the commentaries explain what Hill was saying, that he was saying that the verse in our parsha, the you should love your fellow as yourself. Rashi, of course, in his commentary tells us this is a great principle of Torah. When Hillel says that that you disdain, don't do to your fellow, that's just a rephrasing of this verse in our Parsha. So there's something about this mitzvah, to love your fellow as yourself, that can legitimately be described or be presented as all of Torah and the rest of the Torah, all the other laws of the Torah. It's just the details, just the commentary. And of course, you need to study the commentary. But this is all of Torah. Of course, this is not hyperbole. There's no hyperbole. But listen to this question. What was the convert thinking? What does it mean? Teach me all of Torah while I'm balancing on one leg. Now we know, of course, Balance is very important. You can actually look at the statistics for all-cause mortality for people that can balance on one leg versus people that cannot balance on one leg. No one knows why, but this is very much correlated. If you can balance on one leg, it's a sign that there's something about you that's working. But what is he saying? Teach me all of Torah! while I'm balancing on one leg. Very interesting. Now, the Panam Yafos, authored by the uh, author of the Haflas, something wonderful. Way back in Exodus, after the sin of the golden calf, so Moshe began to pray. God says, oh, I'm going to destroy the whole nation. And we'll start from scratch. You'll be the founder of the Jewish nation reborn. And Moshe says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Rashi there tells us, this is chapter 32 of Exodus. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are like three legs of a stool. If you have a stool that has three legs, relatively stable, and it topples over, all the more so if you have a stool that only has one leg, how much more shaky and rickety and prone to being knocked off will it be? We have a Jewish people, and they have three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And each one serves as a leg to this stool, to this chair of the Jewish people. And now you want to destroy everyone and just start from scratch with just me. And I'll be the only founder, the only father, the only forefather of this new Jewish nation. Well, it'll be that much more insecure and unstable. The stool of this proposed nation will be very wobbly. Says the Panamiafos, our nation, we always have three legs to support us. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are our forefathers. And we can rely on them. We can hearken back to them. We can summon the power of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are incredible resources that we can call upon to provide us with spiritual stability. My grandfather, Blessed Memory, used to always say that we start off the prayer, the Amidah prayer, by saying, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What right do I have to speak before God? Personally, I don't. But I have a mandate because I am a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the forefathers, not just our our ancient forefathers, these are the lead, so to speak, that uphold us even today. But what about the convert? What about the convert? We know, and if you haven't had a chance, I would recommend this on my other channel, one of my other channels, podcast channels. This week, I released a very long, I will say, and rigorous podcast on conversion in Jewish philosophy and law. But this is one of the themes that we spoke about in that particular show. The converts are descendants of Abraham and Sarah. So a convert joins the nation and has the identical responsibilities as any other Jew. But how many legs do they have? An ordinary Jew, a biological Jew, has three legs, has three forefathers to provide spiritual grounding and support, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A convert has the same responsibilities, the same demands upon them. And all they have is one. Says the convert to Hillel, convert me while I'm standing on one leg. I only have one leg. I will become a Jew and I will have the support of a forefather, but only one, only Abraham. I'll be a descendant of Abraham, but not of Isaac and Jacob. How will I survive? How will I not be this wobbly stool that will topple over? How can I endure spiritually with access to only one-third of the spiritual reservoir that the rest of the nation has? 
Isn't that beautiful? What a deep reading into the story. We read the story. This is the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 31a. And it sounds like some sort of silly thing. You know, one leg. What's going on? It shows us Hillel's tolerance and his love and his, uh, his belief in other people. What a deep understanding, deep reading. The rest of the Jews, they have three legs to support them. The convert only has one, only has one forefather. And what does Hillel respond? Love your fellow as yourself. That's the way to get all three legs. How does it do that? So perhaps the idea is that if someone loves another person, they connect to another person. And maybe via connecting to our fellow Jew, our fellow brethren, we can get grandfathered in, so to speak, and become the sons of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as well. Or perhaps what he was telling him is that love, of course, is the force of Abraham. Abraham was the master of kindness, and kindness is associated with love. And that, we're told, begets fear. And that perhaps is why he told him in the negative, there's a way to love someone in a negative, and thereby you're accessing not just the portals, the powers of Abraham, but also that of Isaac and Jacob. Because Jacob is halfway th- halfway between Abraham and Isaac, we're told, Kabbalistically. But that's the back and forth. That is the dialogue. It's such a high-level reading of the story. Convert me while I'm balancing on one leg. He's, he's highlighting the challenge that a convert must face in that they only have one of the three legs of the Jewish people. And the way to make up for it, says Hillel, is with loving your fellow as yourself, that's how you access the other two legs. What a beautiful reading of this Talmud. It's, of course, a story that we are familiar with. It's a beautiful story in the Talmud. But as now we we get more evidence, further evidence, that there's no such a thing as just, you know, hyperbole and some extra words and things are not precise. Every word written with laser-like precision. And I appreciate your attention and your wonderful friendship. Thank you for listening to this special Yomatsmut edition of the Parsha podcast. It was a total delight and a joy and a privilege. Have an incredible rest of your day. A splendid and terrific rest of your week. A sensational, uplifting, meaningful, and transformational Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with help the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. I'm speaking to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Our website is torchweb.org. If you want to see what we're doing here at the Torch Center. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. You can find the link in the description of the podcast, and I'm looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.